dance before the Lord. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to the Holy Convocations Mikra'e Kodesh series. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Note that all quotations are taken from the Complete Jewish Bible by David H. Stern, copyright 1998, all rights reserved, used by permission of Messianic Jewish publishers. This particular commentary is brand new. It's updated April 15th, 2016. Let's start with my... Um, with the Bible verse that I've been using as the um, kind of the theme verse of the Holy Convocation series. That is Leviticus 23, 1 and 2. Uh, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai, which you are to proclaim as Holy Convocations, are my designated times. The Hebrew says, Adonai el Moshe Lemor, el Yisrael Adonai asher tikru otam mikra'e kodesh elehim moadai. This is the commentary to Pesach, Passover, season of our deliverance. Let's read another verse from the book of Leviticus. This is chapter 23, same chapter. This is uh, verse 5. Quote, In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, between sundown and complete darkness, comes Pesach for Adonai. End quote. Shabbat notwithstanding, uh, Pesach is actually the beginning of the biblical feasts of Leviticus chapter 23. The actual feast that we know as Pesach really spans three separate yet inextricably linked feasts. That would be Pesach itself, which is observed on the 14th day of the month of the uh, Jewish month of Nisan, on the Jewish calendar. And then we have um, Hamatzah, which we call unleavened bread. And that's observed on the 15th day of Nisan. And then lastly, we have Bukurim, which is first fruits, or um, Omer Reshit is how I call it in some of my commentaries as well. And that's observed on the day after the Sabbath of Matzah. So, uh, this particular commentary that I'm presenting this year, as I mentioned, is brand new. Uh, if you are following along with me on the, uh, the written version of this commentary, let's take a look at the commentary contents. There are about six different 
topics that I want to just address today. And I don't think it'll be as long as the previous commentary. I think this will be a little shorter. The six contents that I want to talk about. First, I want to um, give a brief introduction, and I want to do some English slash Hebrew liturgy. That's right. I want to read the Exodus story as is rendered out of Exodus 13, just the first 16 verses. And I want to read the English and the Hebrew for you, okay? And then we're going to turn towards um, something a little different this year. Instead of talking about the timing of Pesach, for instance, did Yeshua have a Passover meal? And uh, was he actually killed on a Friday and resurrected on Sunday? And the problems that perhaps presents with the three days and three nights chronology, and whether or not John's gospel accounts of the uh, Passion Week line up with the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, things like that. Instead of talking about those topics like I have in the past, I actually want to um, address some questions and answers, common questions and answers, that I have um, found kind of circulate around Passover and the themes surrounding Passover um, quite frequently every year that I, uh, that I observe Passover. So if you'll allow me, I'm going to address these particular questions. Not all of them will be um, exhaustive, but I think this will be an inside peek into some of the uh, more common questions that perhaps, say, your average Gentile Christian who is a little new to things Messianic, maybe a little bit reserved towards uh, keeping Torah and um, the festivals of, of uh, Leviticus 23 and things like that. So I hope that these particular questions will go a long way towards uh, building bridges between uh, the Christian communities and the Messianic communities or the Torah communities, bringing them closer together, together as we continue to um, serve our Messiah Yeshua and for his glory. So the five questions that I'm going to address in this commentary are going to be number one. Are Israel and the church the same thing? Does God still have a plan for Israel? That's actually one question, even though it's got two question marks in it. The second question I'd like to talk about is, should Christians celebrate Passover? Huh, that's an interesting question, right? Third question I want to talk about is, what does Paul mean when he says to not let anyone judge us in regard to keeping the Sabbath? That'll be a good question for you. And then the fourth one will be, what does the Bible say about Christian liberty? And then lastly, in this commentary to Passover, I want to ask the question, what does it mean to be circumcised in Christ? Okay, you guys ready? Okay, let's get started. We're on the top of page two, and this first section is entitled Introduction in Hebrew. I'm sorry, it's entitled Introduction in English slash Hebrew Liturgy. And then we're going to look at Exodus 13, 1 through 16. And there's a little note there that says, As of April 2016, which of course is this year, I have retired my original 2006 Passover commentary. Yes, it's 10 years old. Uh, it is currently available by written request only. So if you still want to read the old commentary, um, just shoot me an email. Uh, you can drop down to the very bottom of this commentary, and, and you'll see my uh, uh, email uh, posted there, Yeshua613 at Hotmail.com, or just go to my website, www.tetzetorah.com, that's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. Um, scroll to the very bottom, and there's a little icon that looks like an envelope. Click on that, and you can shoot me an email as well. And if you'd like to get the commentary, the older one, the the uh, archive version, you can have that. It's it's certainly welcome, uh, open for you to, to take. Um, 
Also, um, the audio portion that is attached to the written commentary, the older version, uh, I might leave that audio posted somewhere on one of my websites, either graftina.com or Tor. I haven't decided yet. But for now, if you'd like a copy of the written, just email me. And if you'd like uh, access to the podcasts, um, put that in your email as well, and I'll figure out a way how to, for, for you to be able to, to access that as well, okay? All right, let's get started. You know, the festivals of the Lord are, are wonderful times of celebration, of times of joy, of, of worship, of getting together with family, and of recognizing the messianic redemption that's found exclusively in the Messiah, Yeshua. Indeed, Paul, Shaul, writes in Romans 10.4 that the very goal of the Torah is the Messiah himself. This explains to us that all of the feasts of the Lord point to Christ, and they have their fullest expression and meaning in Him alone. Passover, Pesach, is no exception. The Pesach story is quite well known, obviously among Jews, but equally among Gentile Christians these days as well. Wouldn't you agree? In fact, most um, Christians are familiar with the Seder dinner with its big plate full of symbols from the Passover story of the Exodus. You know, you've got, uh, you've got the horseradish on there, you've got the um, the shank bone, which is like a roasted uh, lamb bone. You've got um, some matzo crackers, and you've got uh, some some sweet apple, honey, cinnamon mixture. And you've got all these elements, and they're designed to, to draw the participant of the Seder back into the, the story itself, the story of the Yitzit Mitzrayim, the deliverance from Egypt. Of course, not everyone will, will be able to um, get a chance to attend a Seder. I hope you can. Uh, it's, a, it's a unique treat. It's, for, it's, it's highly recommended for Jews and for Christians. Um, obviously, observant Jews, or those Jewish people who were raised in a home that keeps the Passover, obviously they're going to get an opportunity to experience it firsthand. But... I also know that um, these days, it's not unusual to have a, a Messianic person, such as a Messianic Jew, or maybe a Messianic rabbi, or even a Messianic Gentile, um, put on a Seder for a Christian church. Isn't that wonderful? I've attended quite a few Passover Seders over the years, and uh, quite a few of them have been at Christian churches, and they've been uh, hosted by um, Christian groups who are seeking to embrace the Torah of Moshe and to return to Hebraic lifestyle. And so for that reason, uh, the Passover takes on a symbolic, um, a significant meaning within uh, their Christian experience because it draws us into the story of deliverance and it reminds us not only of the exodus from Egypt, but it reminds us of the freedom that we have in Messiah Yeshua. (laughs) Of course... Um, your average Gentile believer in Yeshua readily welcomes watching either the Ten Commandments movie, you know, the older one, I'm showing my age here, the one with Charlton Heston, and I think it's Yul Brynner who who plays uh, the Pharaoh. Very good movie. Or, at the very least, with the newer generation, um, we've got the animated Prince of Egypt story, and uh, that's a good, that was a good movie, too. I, I highly recommend both of them. Go out and rent either one of those two, right? Uh, the, either the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, the older, you know, the older movie, or uh, the the, uh, the Prince of Egypt. Um, either one of those; uh, those are favorites around this time of year, right? Let's keep reading. Um, 
for this for that reason, because of the familiarity with the um, the background to Passover and and the uh, the Seder and things like that, in this particular commentary, I'm not going to retell the story of the Exodus from Mitzrayim, the uh, the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, uh, Mitzrayim is Egypt. Actually, for this newly updated um, 2016 commentary, instead, I simply wish to open this commentary by reading a relevant passage out of the book of Exodus, and I think that's going to put us in the mindset of the events that formed the first Passover thousands of years ago. Uh, this reading that I'm going to present is going to include, as I mentioned earlier, both the English and the Hebrew, and it's going to serve as the liturgy of my commentary. As you all know, those of you who have listened to many of my commentaries, I like to open uh, my teachings with liturgy, and so this is going to be my liturgy. And then after the um, scriptural recitation, I've decided to treat you all to a look inside my weekly mailbag as a Torah teacher. So, instead of midrashing on the Passover itself, and instead of a lengthy discussion on the challenging chronology of the Passover week as recorded for us in the Synoptic Gospels, as compared to that of John, um, again, uh, reference my older passage commentary for that, I've decided to present and answer five questions that are related to Passover, to Israel, to the church, to Christian liberty, and even circumcision. To be sure, the questions that I'm presenting in this commentary, I didn't make them up. They're real-life questions. They're questions that have actually been sent in by well-meaning readers over the years. And I think that by showing you all the answers right here in my commentary, it is my hope to build you up in Mashiach this Pesach season. I want to encourage you. I want to strengthen you in the Lord. I want to... Um, um, I want to... Uh, uh, what's the word I want to use? Uh, I want to... Um, uh, exhort you uh, to press on towards greater levels of obedience and holiness as we seek to serve our Lord Yeshua. So um, that's the reasons why I'm presenting these questions and answers for you. It's not to show you how smart I am and that I have all the answers to the questions. That's not the reason I'm presenting this for you. So um, all of these, I believe, will continue to serve the body of Jews and Gentiles. And I'm doing this for you as a teacher of Torah. So, for this rendition of the Exodus story, the English itself will be the New American Standard Bible, the NAS version of the Bible. And for the Hebrew, I've chosen the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, or the BHS. Um, that's the one that's been preserved for us in the Leningrad Codex, okay? So, um, follow along with me if you've got the written commentary. If not, just sit back and listen to the um, Exodus story uh, rendered from Exodus 13, the first 16 verses, okay? And I'm just going to read um, English, then Hebrew, then English and Hebrew, and I'll just go down like that, okay? Verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Verse 2. Sanctified to be every firstborn, the first offspring of every room from among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. Kadesh li chol b'chor peter kol rechem bivne Yisrael ba'adam u'behema lihu. Verse 3. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. Vayomer Moshe el ha'am. Zuchor et hayom hazeh asher yitzatem mi mitzrayim mi beit avadim 
כי בחוזק יד הוציא אדוני אתכם מזה ולא יאכל חמץ. Verse 4, On this day, in the month of Abib, you are to go forth. היום אתם יוצאים בחודש האביב. Verse 5, It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this right in this month. Vahaya chi yevi'acha Adonai el eretz hakina'ani vahachiti vahemori vahachivi vahayevusi asher nishba la'avotecha latet lach eretz zavach chalav udvash va'avata et ha'avoda hazot bachodesh hazeh Verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 6. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, uh, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Shivat yamim tochal matzot uvyom hashvi'i chag la'adonai. Verse 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be be seen among you in your borders. Matzot yechel et shivat hayamim v'lo yere'e l'cha chametz v'lo yere'e yere'e l'cha s'or b'chol g'vulecha. Verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. והגדת לבינך ביום ההוא לאמור, בעבור זה עשה אדוני לי בצאתי ממצרים. And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand, and as a reminder on your forehead, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. והיה לך לאות על ידך ולזיכרון בין עיניך למען תהיה תורת אדוני בפיך כי ביד חזקה הוציאך אדוני ממצרים. Therefore you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. ושמרת את החוקה הזאת למועדה מימים ימימה. Verse 11 Now when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and your fathers, and to your fathers, and gives it to you, והיה כי יביאך אדוני אל ארץ הקנעני כאשר נשבע לך ולאבותיך און You shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. Va'avarta ki peter rechem la'adonai v'chol peter shiger behema asher yiyelecha hazkarim la'adonai. 
But every offspring, verse 13, but every offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Verse 14, And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Verse 15, And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. Vayehi ki so it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries on your forehead. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Amen. Okay, and that's going to do it for us for the... Um, the uh, um, the liturgy reading. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, that's going to get us into the the mindset of the Passover. And you know, if you're um, if you're familiar with with uh, attending a Passover seder, you know that in the 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 Haggadah itself, the, the 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 book that we read from when we're going through the seder, one of the requirements according to Judaism is that we retell this story. And of course, this is taken straight out of the book of this is taken straight out of, of uh, the Bible, because God commands us to retell the story. Um, in essence, when our sons ask us, this means we must be telling about the redemption from Egypt. Okay. All right. Um, are you guys ready to tackle some possibly debatable Jewish Christian topics related to Passover? <laughs> I personally love a good Bible debate or discussion, as long as the offering parties, I'm sorry, the differing parties agree beforehand to keep things civil, professional, and of course, bathed in the love of Yeshua. And I promise to do that for you. For that reason, let's be careful to invite the Ruach HaKodesh into our QA session, right? With the conviction that all things should be done in order to exhort one another towards brotherly love and growth in the body. Amen? Amen. So, what I've done for you is I have laced the answers themselves. This is if you're uh, reading this online or if you're following along um, 
I think this will actually show up, it might show up in the PDF version as well, the links where you click on the link and it'll show go. What happens is I've, I've, in, I've, uh, I've actually hot-linked um, a lot of the answers with references uh, over to ebible.com. ebible is uh, one of my um, newly acquired um, internet resources where I not only um, field questions and answers there, I also uh, present commentaries to their um, to their Bible teaching forum. So uh, I highly recommend signing up at eBible. It's free, or you can just read things on online there without actually signing up. But um, it's if you sign up, then you can read all everything there versus limited amount of use. But eBible.com, and then once you're there. Um, I think there's a search box where you can search for name, my name and look up my commentaries and things like that. Uh, all my Torah commentaries are there and, and my Galatians commentaries are showing up there. So uh, eBible has uh, has my uh, attention for now and, um, and my support. And so um, their wonderful scriptural resources are uh, laced in within the links of my uh, commentary here. So if you want to read more, you just hover your mouse or you click on the link and it'll take you, if you're online that is, it'll take you over to eBible's website and you can read the passages there. In reality, um, actually all of the questions and answers in this commentary can be found on the eBible.com site itself. The questions were sent in by real people. They're not set-up questions. They're, they're not made-up questions. They're not um, pre-chosen questions. They're actually real questions, as I mentioned earlier. And the answers are actually mine. They're my own. So uh, there's a link here in my written commentary. You can follow this link to read more questions and answers that I myself personally have addressed. And that's at uh, ebible.com slash users slash, and there's a number here, 492502 slash the word profile. And, and if you follow that link, then it'll take you straight to my profile. And then you can um, see that I've got, I don't know, probably about 60 or 70 80 or so, something different, questions and answers that I've uh, personally addressed with more to come as time permits. And um, let me know what you think, okay? Now, I believe this first question and answer uh, that I mentioned earlier is actually made up of two separate questions. I think that this first question that I'm going to address, I think it actually forms the foundation towards appreciating the importance of the subsequent Passover related questions and answers that will present it in uh, that will be presented in the in the uh, the rest or the rest of the commentary and so um, in my estimation uh, I believe that once we as Jews and Gentiles and Messiah begin to understand our place within salvation and election history as Jews and Gentiles um, I think then we will subsequently have a better chance at comprehending the off-controversial topics of exactly who should be following Torah, who should be keeping the feasts. Is the Torah bondage? What exactly is the value of circumcision um, from a biblical perspective and things like that? And so that's why we're going to talk about question one. Are Israel and the church the same thing? Does God still have a plan for Israel? Okay. Let's read the questions and answers here. As I mentioned, I don't think this will be too long of a commentary. It's about 20 minutes into the commentary right now, 20, 25 minutes in or so. And I think I, uh, I'll see if I can just get this done in one go. Maybe it'll be an hour long, something like that. Okay, 45 minutes to an hour. Let's go. If not, I'll break it off into parts A, B, C, things like that. All right, here we go. <laughs> um, as I 
uh, contemplate this question, it seems as if everyone has an opinion on who's Israel, who's the church. Are they the same thing? Does God still have a plan for Israel, right? I'm no different in that I also have a strongly held opinion that drives my understanding of my identity, of my responsibility to God's covenant, and of course my place in God's family. No one is, of course, perfected in his views. In truth, all of the differing views that we encounter as we look through various commentaries, through various websites, listen to sermons from pastors and rabbis, read books on the topic, etc., all of the different views must logically carry some weight of truth to them, right? I mean, nobody's just teaching bald-faced lies. And so for that reason, um, as a student of the Word, I so greatly appreciate a forum such as this. Uh, and what I mean by that is not only the uh, the commentaries that I put out, but the eBible forum that I um, uh, borrowed my questions and answers from. Um, I appreciate forums such as as those where we can uh, present our differing views in a spirit of love and mutual respect, even in the midst of our disagreements, right? We all need each other. So for that reason, may God grant us grace as we continue to study his word for greater and greater insights from the text. So concerning this question about Israel and the church, um, here's what I hold to. I'll just try to be succinct, all right? There's, here's what the short answer looks like. I'm going to answer the two questions head-on and then attempt to substantiate my answers from the text. Question, remember there were two questions. One, are Israel and the church the same thing? Uh, short answer, well, yes and no, <laughs> right? Israel actually exists on two levels. There's what I call national Israel, and then there's what I call remnant Israel. The church exists within remnant Israel, and remnant Israel exists within national Israel. So I'm going to flesh this out with the verses below, but I just wanted to let you know that's where I'm launching from, okay? And then the second question was, does God still have a plan for Israel? And my answer, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Emphatically, yes. Messiah is the head of remnant Israel. And even though national Israel doesn't have faith in Yeshua yet, nevertheless, God the Father is still going to bring national Israel to her knees in repentance someday. And praise God he will. We know that this is true because we read about it in the prophets. All right, let's go. Um, let's get some longer answers. And this way we'll be able to um, substantiate uh, the shorter answers, okay? Here we go. Paul sets up the olive tree example in Romans 11, verses 11 through 24. And in that chapter, in uh, verse 16 of Romans 11, Paul teaches that if the root is holy, then the branches are holy. And what I do is I take the olive tree to be the family of Israel and the root to be the patriarchs. Tim Haig is fond of saying that the olive tree is the visible people of God in any, gener any generation, meaning the people who are alive and are... Um, are uh, recognizable within that generation. That's what he calls the uh, the root, the the, uh, the visible uh, people of God, and that that are living at the time that the uh, that the question is um, being discussed. So um, I take the olive tree to be the family of Israel. So similar, uh, nearly identical to Tim Haig's view, and I take the root to be the patriarchs themselves, not only Abraham, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the matriarchs, of course, as well. So the root is the the promises and the 
the, 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 the patriarchs themselves and the, and the covenant promises that they held to by faith. That's what I take to be the root. Now, in this verse, the holy aspect, I believe, is Paul teaching the set-apartness. That's, of course, what the holy means. It's the holiness, the set-apartness of the patriarchs uh, from the rest of the world unto God, sanctified, sanctified. And this makes um, the offspring, all of the tree's branches, of course, um, all of their offspring, uh, the, the patriarchs, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But let's just say, for instance, highlight Abraham. This makes all of his offspring, the, the branches of the tree themselves, this makes them set apart from the world unto God as well, right? Because of the principle of sanctification. Abraham, the nourishing root, is what I call the exemplar of faith for all of his branches. He is the model. That's what I mean by exemplar. But especially for the remnant, the remnant who live among the other unsaved natural branches. And, of course, for the grafted in branches, um, he's the model of faith because of his faith in the promised word of the Lord. And there's a reference there to Genesis 15.6. The root, um, oftentimes when I have this type of discussion about who is the root in um, Romans chapter 11, Many Christians are fond of saying that the root is probably Yeshua. It's probably Jesus. And I think they base that on the verse uh, that's mentioned in the prophets about how that a root will come out of Jesse, uh, speaking of the offspring of, of David, of Jesse, and then of David, of course, Yeshua being that offspring. And he's the root and the offspring of David. And so, and he's the, he is the, of course, I, and that's true, he is the root. In that sense, but I don't think that Paul um, is using Yeshua as the root in this particular chapter. Here's why I think so: the root cannot be Yeshua, in my opinion, because Paul elsewhere teaches in this particular book to Romans that we cannot be separated from the love of God in Messiah. Right? Isn't that what we read in Romans eight thirty-eight and thirty-nine? That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Messiah. So, in my opinion, um, branches, uh, they, they can't be broken off um, in this sense. They, they can't be, um, how do we say, um, Paul teaches that we can't be separated from the love of God and Messiah. That's Romans 8, 38 and 39. Yet, in this particular example in Romans, branches actually get broken off from this tree, right? They get separated, Uh of course, the branch, the broken off, uh, you can read that in, in, in what uh, chapter, I'm sorry, uh, the same chapter, but uh, verses 17 through 21. Also, in this particular passage of Romans chapter 11, Paul warns the Gentile Christians not to suppose that they support the root, right? In verse 18. Don't, and this is the key why I think that it, that it's not that the branches. I'm sorry, that the root is not Yeshua. What does it say uh, Paul say um, in uh, verse 18? Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So um, this seems to make no sense if the root is Yeshua, right? Why would have to? Why would Paul have to include that warning? For indeed, no Christian in history has ever made such a supposition that they're supporting Yeshua, right? The branches being broken off are some of the members of national Israel whom God prunes and why 
because of lack of faith in Yeshua. We know this is true because he, he says exclusive, explicitly so in verses 19 and 20. Uh, and in order to, wake, may, uh, to make way for Gentile Christians uh, who demonstrate faith in Yeshua, this particular pruning takes place. Um, Mark Nanos, a popular Christian author who's, who uh, is known for his book, uh, the uh, the mystery of Romans or the irony of of Galatians, I believe those two very good books. He makes a good case for the the Greek behind this this uh, verse where God breaks them as actually the branches are being bent, not necessarily broken, but being bent uh, so that the grafting can take place. But either way, whether they're broken off or bent, um, we know that 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 God does this pruning so that he can bring in the wild olive tree, the, the, the wild olive branches, the Gentile Christians who um, have demonstrated genuine faith in Yeshua. Now, important for us to remember, these wild olive branches that are grafted in, um, they're grafted in not necessarily among national Israel, although national Israel is already envisioned with, I'm sorry, remnant Israel is envisioned with the national, but the wild olive branches don't get grafted to national Israel. Rather, they are grafted in among the remnant of Israel. That's where they get grafted to, right to remnant Israel, not necessarily to national Israel. And, and that's a very important distinction, I think, that we need to make when we're, um, when we're examining this passage. Notice that Paul does not say, also, how the remnant came to be in the tree itself. Go ahead and look up and down the passage. There's nowhere where he mentioned it. And I believe it's because, like Paul himself, who was Jewish, these remnant branches were actually born into their own olive tree. They are remnant Jewish Israelites. And they're remnant because they have faith in Yeshua. But they are grafted into their own... I'm sorry, they're not grafted. They, they're, they are um, included in their own olive tree because it is a, 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 it's, the fam, it's the visible family of Israelites of which... Um, ethnic Jews are were primarily and are primarily um, the historical um, uh, bulk. The, uh, the, 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 the Most of the people were, of course, Jewish. Of course, this, I'm, I'm speaking to the choir. Most of you already know all that, right? So Paul warns the Gentile Christians um, uh, about... I'm sorry, not, not that part right now. Um, Paul doesn't say how the remnant came to be in the tree. And I believe it's like... Uh, it's because... Like Paul, they were born to their own olive tree. Um, remnant Israel, they're natural branches. And they're just natural branches that graduated to faith in Yeshua, who, of course, is also a son of Abraham. Uh, Yeshua is a natural branch, right? He's a natural branch of his own tree. So the, the remnant uh, uh, branches, uh, they dwell in the same olive tree as, a national, as national Israel. So national Israel and remnant Israel are both on the same tree. It's one tree of the visible people group of God, which from Paul's per perspective at the time of his writing was still primarily Jewish Israelites. We, we, we're just starting to bring the Gentiles into this tree, and, it's, and so the, a lot of the top of the branches, the newer branches, um, are going to be Gentile Christians, whereas the, the older branches and the older, the trunk parts of the tree, etc., the roots obviously are all going to be uh, Jewish Israelites. Okay, let's keep reading. Um, we're almost done. So, um, in my answer, I explain that in the pruning of natural branches, some of the unsaved Jews, Paul doesn't say they're completely cut off from Israel, right? 
he doesn't say that they're completely cut off because if they, these unsaved Jews, if they, like believing Jews and Gentiles, place their faith in Yeshua, what does Paul say? They too can be grafted back into their own olive tree. But this time it will be as remnant Israel. And we read that in, in verse 23 and 24. So um, I believe the cutting off part that Paul talks about is not necessary. It isn't a salvific cutting off. In other words, they're cut off because of lack of faith in Yeshua. In other words, I don't think they they had faith and then lost faith and then they get cut off because they lo- they lost their faith. I don't think that's the metaphor that Paul is talking about. Instead, what he's what I believe he's presenting is that the visible people group of God are brought near to God by the grace of God. They're brought near to the Messiah in an effort to give them the opportunity to make a decision for Messiah. And the grace aspect is the the fact that they are that they are members of the community of Israel where they're close to the words of God and they're and they have the spirit of God that is moving among the among the members even if not every one of the members believes yet in the Messiah of the scriptures. You guys understand what I'm saying? It's the same metaphor that we have in average churches today, right? You can have a mega church where we have thousands of people, and yet the pastors know that not every single church member is a believer. And yet, by the very fact that the people are gathered under one roof and they're listening to the sermons week after week, those unbelievers sitting among the believers are actually in what a, a, a position of grace. And the reason they're in a position of grace is because God has allowed them to be in a an environment where the Word of God is taught, where the Spirit of God can be felt, where the power of God can be manifested. See my point? It is within that scope of grace that the the undecided members, those who are not yet Christians, but they're they're contemplating belief in Yeshua. They are they're um, uh, considering whether or not this truth that's being taught is worth personally laying hold of. That's what I mean by um, being in a position of grace, and I think that's what Paul's describing. Uh, these many of these unsaved Jews are in this position as they are uh, uh, mingling in and among the remnant Jews. We've got unsaved Jews on the tree. We've got remnant Jews on the tree who are Christian Jews, uh, saved Jews, Messianic Jews. And then along come these uh, saved Gentile Christians who are grafted in among the remnant. And so we've got a strong Messianic presence going on, being introduced into the tree itself. And I think this gives the unsaved Jews the opportunity to... to uh, better uh, yet make an informed decision about who, about the uh, uh, position of Messiah in Israel. You guys understand what I'm saying? So when Paul says that they're cut off, I don't think that God cuts them off because of because they lost faith in Yeshua. Rather, they're broken off because of the the the, the time of the visitation, as Yeshua calls it. The time of their visitation is here, and they still haven't made a decision yet. In other words. Um, it's kind of like the description given in the prophets where uh, God describes that the plant that's been um, planted, it's been tended, it's been watered, it's been sheltered, it's, been, it's gotten sunlight, it's grown, but yet there's no fruit. 
And so, in essence, the gardener, who is God, expects fruit. The time of fruit should be now, and yet this plant is not yielding fruit. And so God has no choice but to kind of hack it off and let it sit off to the side for a while, kind of time out position, until it can consider bearing fruit, right? Um, this guy, I think that's what's going on in, in this passage. So, in this last paragraph, as I close this first question uh, down, Paul doesn't say that these branches are completely cut off from Israel because if they, like believing Jews and Gentiles, place their faith in Yeshua, they too can be grafted back into their own olive tree. But this time, as I say, it will be as remnant Israel. In fact, Paul goes even further to suggest that since the gospel is essentially a culturally Hebrew concept ingrained in the lives of the Hebrews and transmitted through the scriptures that they revere, then essentially it's more natural for a Jew to believe in a Messiah than it is for a wild olive branch to believe in him, right? You can read Romans 11.24 and uh, kind of catch the meaning of the wild by nature and contrary to nature illustrations that Paul uses there, right? And I think that's what's going on. So that's the first question in our Passover commentary. And at about 37, 38, almost 40 minutes into the commentary, I think I will break it off and call this part A. So stick around. This is Pesach 2016, brand new Passover commentary. My name is Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tenuva in Thornton, Colorado. And you're listening to my Passover commentary. Stick around for part two, where we're going to, or part B, I should say, where we're going to start with question number two. Should Christians celebrate Passover? Stay tuned. <laughs> 